listening to the Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast with Chris Dempsey. Hey guys, welcome to episode 15 of the Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast. I'm Chris Dempsey, your host. And um, let's see, reach me at uh, Wouldn't It Be Cool podcast at gmail.com. And Wouldn't It Be Cool on Facebook and Instagram. Please do uh, let me know how it's going, please. So this episode, I drove up to uh, rural Plymouth, New Hampshire, and met with Steve Whitman, uh, who is a great guy and who is a permaculture guy. Um, and this episode's a little, little unique, maybe. Um, in that we kind of went deep on his subject. Uh, we definitely talked about life and exercise and family and all that stuff and had a great time getting to know and meet Steve. But we um, went a little you know, deep and specific on permaculture because I was pretty unfamiliar with it. Um, so I found it kind of interesting. It was cool. Um, I took some video while I was up there kind of working on a little video project around my podcast. So keep an eye out for that. Um, and it was fun. It was cool. Steve was very gracious and patient with me while I muddled through. Um, so uh, that's it. Sit back and enjoy the show and meet my, my good friend, my new good friend, Steve. All right, man. Steve, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Yeah, Let's absolutely. Slide out a little bit. Um, beautiful place you got here. Thank you. Super rad. I like it. Um, so uh, I want to kind of just dive in. I kind of just want to dive into what you do first and, and what it is first. All right. Um, uh, because I uh, hadn't really... Um, I don't really know, to put it simply. You know, I've looked into it a little bit. I checked out your website. I actually listened to a couple of YouTube videos on the way up here. Oh, cool. Uh, which is kind of cool. And, uh, but I thought easier than me trying to describe it to people. You can just give people what, um, what permaculture is, I guess. I mean, you, you can probably spiel on that for three days, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I hope you have enough tape. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's permaculture and, uh, and, uh, and what do you, what do you specifically do with it? All right, cool. Um, yeah, permaculture is definitely the theme through all the stuff that I do personally and professionally. <clears throat> so it's really often difficult when people ask, you know, what do you do for work? Because I have so many different aspects of my professional life. Right. Um, I have the consulting firm, Resilience Planning and Design, and we do all kinds of different work around New Hampshire that sometimes is specifically for permaculture design projects, but is always inspired by or informed by kind of a, an ecological design lens. You know, mm. we're looking at how natural systems work and how humans interact with their environment. Um, and then I'm also teaching a lot. So I teach in higher ed at, here at Plymouth State University at Colby Sawyer College and at Green Mountain College oh. in their grad program. Oh. And all of those courses are also permaculture-oriented, 
um, or directly permaculture design certificate courses. And then the work that we're doing here, just on our little half acre in town lot, mm. is also been fully informed by a permaculture design process. Um, and the way I usually describe permaculture is, for me, it's really a design framework. It's a process that you can go into for any type of project, uh, designing a business, designing a mm. community initiative, um, or specifically designing you know, a, a physical space, mm. um, a homestead, uh, downtown. It can be used, it's scalable. Yeah. It can be used in any geographic or cultural situation. So I've done a lot of international teaching. Um, on other continents using the very same process yep. for totally different results. And it's really driven by what you understand about the existing conditions of the site, the systems that are in place, the history of that site, um, and the people that are involved. You know, what are the goals of the people? Are they more about their shelter and their building needs? Are they more about food production or are they about um, mutual collaboration, um, mm. the local economy? It can really go, and permaculture sort of covers all those, does all those things. So yeah, it's not it's, just food, not just uh, food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. a systems, a whole systems way of thinking and designing. Hmm. Yeah. So it's the more you know about it, like I mean, even now after you know over fifteen years of kind of working with permaculture, reading everything and thinking about it, I feel like I'm just learning. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Like, yeah, yeah. I learn so much every year. Um, it, which, that's an interesting, um, concept because at the, at the, at the root of it, um, it won't, it is what it is. Is that a, is that a, a safe sa statement? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it is what it is because it is earth and it right. is like the environment. Um, and it is changing. Yeah, yeah. Constantly. Yeah. Which is, which is cool. What, um, it cut, and why is it changing? Well, I think because nothing is static. I mean, it's, we're in such a dynamic world. Right. Um, so even things that we've done here on the property, establishing um, small systems like food forests, you plan it for kind of like the end horizon. Like what's the eventual goal? The eventual goal is a certain number of, of plant species that bear certain fruits or other medicinal products. And do you plant these really small trees kind of with that end goal in mind? Mm. And then all of a sudden, one day you're walking around harvesting things from your food forest and you realize that this whole system has evolved and other species that you had brought in are now gone. The conditions aren't light for them anymore. And that the natural environment has plugged in other species mm. that are needed now. And so as a designer or as a practitioner, you're just a participant. Right. Like you don't run the show. Yeah. You're an observer. <laughs> right. Yeah. And meanwhile, your life changes. I mean, your perspective on the world changes, your needs of your family change. So like, it's just amazing to step back and kind of watch these interrelationships and the, how they shift mm. and grow over time. So who, so who uses, who, who's a, uh, I get your answer would be everybody. Like who's sort of like a, uh, a good candidate for thinking permaculture. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you could, I, I like the fact that you said everybody, yeah. um, it's people that are solution oriented, people yeah. that maybe recognize the problems in the world and are concerned, but as opposed to just being worried about it and either putting your head in the sand or feeling like you can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. Um, people that want to be involved either in their own lives, making a positive change or really roll up their sleeves and get involved in their community. So typically people that are drawn to permaculture 
are really excited about helping create those solutions needed in the world, um, have a curiosity, have a willingness to participate mm. and have a, you know, just a kind of inherent desire to learn. Um, yeah. And help and help. Right. That'd be a good and help. Yeah. But that can be, a, you know, some people will self study or take a course and then they will just focus on some aspect of their own property and, kind of keep to themselves and others will just continue to get involved with projects and take it to new places. Hmm. Um, so it's exciting. So it sounds pretty cool. Um, but even, st- even still in your description, it's still a little vague in my head. Sure. You know what I mean? It's still kind of, okay, but what, um, uh, so I think like, I'd like to hear some examples, right? Yeah. That absolutely. kind of, that kind of illustrate specifically, uh, what it is and how it helps and how it works. Okay. Yeah. So we walked around here a little bit and I think we'll walk around a little bit more after, yeah. um, but on this property, we're a half acre. Um, we're a small, like 12 to 1300 square foot home, 1890s home. Um, so people have lived on this property in this type of a structure for over a hundred years. Yeah. Um, the site when we moved here was very suburban in nature, like basically lawn for most of the half mm. acre um, and had been that way for decades. We came here as a family. We ended up being here as a family with, you know, two adults, two children and thinking about what our goals were for the site for in-town living and trying to meet some of our needs on the site. And we really studied the existing conditions of the site, the slope of the property, where water ponds, um, how much water we get over mm. the course of a year, how much solar access we get. And over time, we created a plan with that being informed by the site and being informed by our goals, where we transitioned from primarily grass, lawn that had to be cut every week. Mm. It was energy intense and was just no fun mm. for me yeah. or anyone else, <laughs> um, to a system where we covered up the lawn with compost and wood chips and other organic materials, introduced plants in locations where they could capture and infiltrate water, soak up additional water, um, um, introduce some flood storage capacity. We grow rice here, so we have a series of small rice paddies. Um, Identify a location for a season extension greenhouse and build that and start growing more of our food through the winter. We usually will grow greens till the end of January Mm. and then start up at the beginning of March. In the house? In the greenhouse, yeah. yeah, Yeah. yeah. Um, So it was through that permaculture process of kind of asking questions letting the land inform where things could happen and what could happen um, and what, how our goals you know, were to determine some of that, that we were able to transform this site and learn from the site. Like mm. there, now there are um, plants that are introducing themselves, um, which I find really interesting. Oh, yeah. There are opportunities for me to do some research and see, like, well, why is this yeah. plant here? What are the conditions that it wants to be here? It's either trying to you know, repair some you know, ill management or past damage um, or the conditions are just right, and we haven't introduced another plant. Right. Um, so, which can which can also um, for a future site you might be designing, you might recognize that this environment is going to be good for this. So I'm going to introduce absolutely that, thing that introduce itself on my property, right? Yeah. yeah, and I mean, and some of the yields are, you know, we get some of our medicine from the site, we get some of our fruit and other food products from the site, but biodiversity. I mean, mm. when you have a property like ours and it was mostly lawn you don't see many animals Uh, but now we have water on the landscape Um, we've had a 
up. We had a bear this year because of the drought that came to the front little mm. wildlife pond. It was drinking and depositing um, gifts for us mm -hmm. in the front yard. Um, <laughs> but we have the bird life's up. The small mammals are up. The insects are like off the charts. Wow. Um, so it's a wonderful place to be. And also know that you're helping provide habitat in a place where the habitat had been taken away through human mm. interaction. Not interesting. So like I, one of the things I really like about permaculture is um, the promise that we can look at how to conserve spaces. We don't need to meddle with all spaces, yeah. but also like how can we regenerate some of the ecosystems? And that it will do surface? it. And it will. If you yeah. give it the time or you give it a little yeah. bit of assistance and nudge it in a direction. Yeah. Um, and I think that there are lessons that can be learned from that for how we guide development elsewhere in our communities. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, that uh, one is, man, it takes a lot of patience. Like the process is a really patience-oriented process, right. which I bet is daunting for people to get off the ground with it. It can be. It often will shock people when they first get excited about permaculture. And then one of the principles is slow and small solutions. Mm. And the idea is that you don't necessarily figure it all out at once and implement it all at once. Right, right, right. I mean, and there are some nice ways to phase it in so that you, you know, preserve your own sanity in your yeah. own schedule and yeah. maybe finances too. But, um, and then did you, um, did you, it doesn't sound like you did, but did you pick this property based on your like assumptions? Did you try to make assumptions about the property or did you just say, we like this spot and I, and inherently through your experience, you knew something could happen. Yeah. It was the latter. Um, yeah. I was just reading a lot and kind of self-studying about on permaculture when we bought this house. We used to own a house that was in Danbury, New Hampshire. And so it was pretty far from everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a really quiet rural property. It was our first home that we'd owned. And it was the place that I really started to struggle with. How do you as a homeowner make decisions? Like what's the most sustainable interior finish for a wall? You know, what's the best roofing material? And I really grappled with like, how do you, how do I evaluate these things? Mm -hmm. How do I know that I'm being a good steward and making good decisions um, and really trying to chart a more sustainable life? And so I had started to read about permaculture and could see the promise for using that in the decision-making process. We bought this property based on location, really. I mean, mm. The fact that it's in town, we wanted to move back in town, reduce our transportation footprint, have more you know, people in close proximity to build relationships, be part of a community. Yeah. And we liked the location. Um, I had a coworker at the time who lived across the street who gave us a heads up when the house was on the market. And then when we got here, it was really more of a conscious decision to say, let's not start just making changes. Let's take a year plus and mm. be and learn and about the, the property lawn. and mow the lawn <laughs> and see if that works. And then we just stopped yeah. mowing sections too. Like, yeah. well, what happens if you don't mow that section? What yeah. starts to show up? And it's amazing the diversity of species that will, you know, crop up. Yeah. Right on. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I want to, I want to go um, back a little now into like who you are. Sure. Where you came from. And I'm going to hit stop on that. Okay. Yeah, um, cool. But like, where were you, um, did you grow up in New Hampshire? Where were you like born? No, I grew up in Rhode Island. Um, so I grew up in Rhode Island, um, went to college down in Southern New England, and then moved to Western Mass for grad school and went to University of Massachusetts Amherst for environmental planning, regional planning. And I was finishing up in 97. Um, I was, had been spending a lot of time um, being active in the outdoors, backpacking, mountain biking, stuff like that, coming up to northern New England, primarily New Hampshire and Vermont. Mm. 
and just made a decision as in finishing grad school that I didn't want to be um, in Southern New England any longer. I liked, I, ha- I couldn't articulate what I liked about it, but I just knew that when I was up here, there was a sense of community and a sense of um, general interest that people had in each other. Mm. People seemed to be authentic. And I like the size of the communities. I like the fact that this community in particular, this is actually where we located right away, um, had a college. And so it kind of had a mix of ages and activity. And there's just a ton of stuff to do. Um, So, yeah. So I've been here since 97. Yeah, that's a while. Yeah. 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 That's actually fast. Yeah. 97, 2000. Yeah, so like 20 years. Almost 20 years. Yeah, yeah. that's how long I would have been in New Hampshire. As okay. Well. Yeah, I was, I was in Mass, like Boston area. Right. And I moved up same same sort of time. Um, That's cool. What? But I'm sorry, what part of Rhode Island? Um, Kind of all over, small state. Oh. So I was bor- <laughs> born in um, West Warwick, Rhode Island, and grew up for a while in Coventry, and then Smithfield, and yeah. then North Smithfield. Yeah. Yeah. But it's a really small state. Yeah. And what drew you to uh, what drew you to permaculture, or did you what did you work in before that? Um, well, I've always been been trained as a planner, community and environmental planner, and that's still what I do um, primarily. And what was lacking for me was, I, I think, a deeper understanding of how to how to incorporate what we know about our natural resources. Um, and how to create a more sustainable, more ecological vision of the future. And so when I sought out permaculture, I sought it out as a homeowner, trying to like make sense of decision-making and material selection and all that. But I also saw that it was transferable um, in this other scale, at a community scale. And so from that point forward, I've kind of continued to refine my professional side of things um, as a planner and permaculture designer instructor. Um, I see the two as totally linked Mm. um it's still kind of a niche within community planning because there aren't there aren't a lot of us nationwide that really have a strong permaculture background and really understand municipal process and decision making and master plans and zoning ordinances and all this stuff Um, but i think it's a really rich opportunity to be looking at everything in a comprehensive way Mm. and so that's my focus i mean i'm working on education doctorate now I'm trying to finish in 2018, and the focus of my dissertation for my doctorate is on this very topic, yeah. you know, ecological design within land use regulations. Yeah, it seems to make perfect sense. I think so. Yeah. Like it's fascinating. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you see things, like when I when I see things uh, online or whatever, um, I I immediately think things like, that, like, why aren't we doing that? Why aren't we using wind, you know, these little cool wind turbine right. that seem perfect right they seem small and unobtrusive and you know uh efficient and absolutely better long term so why aren't and i kind of posed that to chris you know like why why doesn't dover use these things and uh he kind of gave me the, a vague answer like you'd expect like eh, we kind of you know looked into it or whatever um but what um were your parents into that kind of stuff like what made you so no but my parents um i think really valued time in the outdoors and mm-hmm. so they they really made sure that i think in my formative years um i spent a lot of time out in the woods like i spent a lot of time either directly with them walking in the woods and you know uh doing fun things outdoors and kind of feeling comfortable and then also alone i mean as a as a small kid i don't even really know quite how young but you know five six years old 
we lived right at the edge of, of the woods. We were mm. kind of that suburban sprawl within Rhode Island that was migrating out. And um, I was free to roam. Like I was mm. free to be gone for hours at a time or most of the day as a small child. Yeah. Um, I'm sure everyone knew exactly where I was, but um, I was comfortable with that, you know, going out and making little debris huts and, you know, making little fires at some point later on, like having a little spot behind the house where I could make a little campfire, or, yeah. you know, just spending time studying stuff that's in the streams. Um, and, and that's still t to this day, I enjoy that. And I try to introduce that to a lot of the courses I teach in higher ed because students have become pretty um, disconnected from that, or maybe it wasn't part of their, their youth experience and they've been attracted to an environmental um, profession or an environmental program to study for some reason, but they're not necessarily comfortable interacting. Yeah. Um, and so even we, I incorporate mindfulness in quite a few of my courses and we'll go out to a park here in town and we talk about, you know, just being ob observant in nature and, um, you know, thinking back to your last podcast, you know, trying to reduce screen time and reconnect with the systems that you're trying to protect yeah. professionally. And so we go out and do a sit spot exercise and they spend 20 minutes and they just sit in the forest and they come back and they're all so happy. Yeah. And they're also like their confidence is boosted. Like I can do that anytime. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 You can do that whenever you want. You can. Yeah. You yeah. can go longer. You can go to cooler places. <laughs> yeah. Right. yeah, that's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah, but that's a that's an interesting observation though. And it's it's interesting that you see it in that you have the opportunity to see it in students. Right. That they that they are being brought up in a different because I had obviously I had the same sort of experience. Like I was gone all day. Right. Like just out exploring and gone all day. And I don't know if it has to do with like where I mean I, I wouldn't I wouldn't see why it would. Where where we grow up. Because I grew up in a different um like environment, a little more suburban mm -hmm. than rural. Right. You know, so I feel like um, it was easier to get around maybe sure. as a kid. You know, like I could ride my bike places and I could um, I could take the tea places. So right. I just kind of was out adventuring. And I and so maybe I'm a little askewed, like raising my kids in a place um, where it's just hard. Like, do you find that around here? No, like, I mean... I mean, our kids... You have kind of a cool... Is this a dead end? No. So you came off of Route 3, yeah. and then it actually circles around right into downtown. Oh, okay. And we have, right at the end of the road, we have tremendous uh, town uh, park, but then tremendous mountain bike and running trails that oh, just cool. spider out all the way out to Plymouth Mountain and right. beyond. And so our kids have the freedom they can go down. They can walk downtown. Right. We have a skate park right down behind here. Mm. They can go down the skate park or the pump track. And how or, young were they when you were letting them do that? I mean, they were pretty young. I have really bad memory of like yeah, ages and stuff. <laughs> uh, I think they've always been teenagers now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they together, you know, the two kids yeah. are with their friends. I mean, they were pretty young. They could go over to the park and they often would go over there and make jumps for the snowboards mm. and skis and stuff. Mm. I mean, younger than 10. Oh, that's cool. Um, and to this day, one of my sons will by himself just go take a cell phone and in case he needs help, yeah. but just head off into the trails and go riding mm. if nobody else is available to go. Yeah. And I think there's an independence that, that we got, you and I got um, from that. But also when you're out there by yourself, you have different experiences. You connect with the natural environment. You're not afraid, yeah. you know, per se. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that encourages you to go on and do bigger and bigger things. Yeah. And you, 
you have these personal experiences in nature, you're a little bit more committed to wanting to be thoughtful in how you lead your life and protect it, um, see the value in it. Um, yeah. You would think. You would hope. You would think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'd hope so. Do you think your kids are headed that route? I don't know. It'd be interesting. Yeah. I don't, their pa- their individual passions haven't really emerged in the sense of like, what do they want to do every day um, that they'd be excited about? Um, and we, I mean, even as someone that teaches in higher ed institutions, I've told them since they were really young, there's no expectation you go to college. Mm. You need to figure out what you want to, like what you're passionate about and what do you want to do? It could be some combination of things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they decide to do, what really kind of lights their fire and how maybe even how that changes. I mean, it's changed for me. Yeah. Um, you know, we continue to evolve. We continue to learn if we're open to that. Who knows the adventures that are ahead for any of us, I guess. Is that what your parents did for you, too? And I think they kind of told me I was going to go to college. Did they? <laughs> um, and they made the opportunity available, and I figured I should probably jump on it yeah. um, while they were willing to help me because they supported me in, in that as well. Um, and I was really very focused, at, uh, pretty young, in kind of like the idea of professions and what people do for a living and how it could be meaningful. And in permaculture, mm-hmm. we call it a right livelihood, like that you do something that kind of feeds your soul, that is using your strengths and your passions, but also, you know, leads to greater good. Mm. And I think intuitively I knew that. I think I've been very fortunate to have pretty good intuition and to see opportunities and, and seize them. Um, but I think if it wasn't for their, you know, gentle encouragement, I don't know if I would have gone to college right away mm. or what I would have done. I don't know. Would have been yeah. a different journey, I guess. Yeah. Did you have an adventurous spirit? So you might have, you might have adventured off. Yeah. I, you know, I think I did. I had a, I had a desire to adventure off and do stuff, but I wasn't surrounded by people that were doing that. Mm. You know, especially in Rhode Island, people don't typically leave yeah. Rhode Island. Um, and so I think the culture of even like my friends and coworkers and people around me, they were kind of committed to like doing something and being there. I mean, even when I announced to folks that I was going to go off to grad school, and I mean, people moving out of the state, it seemed like a big deal to a lot of folks. Um, so I don't know that any younger I would have, you know, packed up and headed west or anything like that. Mm. Out into the world. Out into the world. Yeah. But I have since done it. Um, and I was not in a position to travel, you know, until I was an adult. And then a lot of my international travel was through teaching. Mm. So a lot of places I was going to, I was going with students and experiencing different cultures for the first time with a group of students. Um, and it was a wonderful place, a wonderful way to see these places, experience different cultures and experience the world. But it wasn't something I had the capital to do on my own. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, that's one of the big problems with travel. Yeah, and then it's a huge footprint as well. So... And that's part of permaculture. That's part of permaculture. Right. Yeah. Like one of my favorite places to go and teach is in East Africa. So I've been to Tanzania several times to teach permaculture courses. Um, And it started because I had a relationship with people who were working for an Australian run nonprofit. They wanted a permaculture teacher. They didn't have anybody in that region that could come and teach. Um, And so I went there, I taught. And then the last time I went some of my students from the first course were my teaching team. They were teaching Mm -hmm. alongside me and they're all incredibly qualified to teach. So 
I then resisted going back. You know, mm. I said I wouldn't go back because there were teachers there. Yeah. And one of them has started a permaculture school in Zanzibar. And it's, oh, wow. they're doing amazing things. Yeah. Um, and that's the intent, like from kind of help people get up to speed and figure out how they're going to do it in a way that makes sense in that location. But then like know to back off. Yeah. Because um, you don't need some guy from New England flying all over the place to do right. this. Hmm. But sometimes there is, it needs to be an initial investment maybe in getting things going. Um, yeah. That makes sense. Selfishly, I'd like to go back, but. Yeah. But it's a good commitment that you're not. Right. It's a commitment to the, to the, uh, the culture. Right. <laughs> the perma culture. Well played. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to ask about travel, but I want like, so then, um, permaculture, uh, what's the root of the, the name? So it's, because it's, it's so all encompassing. You know, it's really, it's like every aspect of your life, every decision is informed by this, you know, belief system. Yes. So it's just, so I'm just kind of curious. It just struck me. It's a great like question. It's an interesting name, you know, that, that it, I think that's why some people are, because I've been talking about this like podcast and, and almost everyone doesn't know what it is that I've talked about it and, or hasn't even heard of it. Right. So I think I'm wondering if one of the barriers to entry is a, an awkward name. Yeah, the name's really unfortunate. Yeah. <laughs> um, the name's unfortunate. I try not to get hung up on the, the word, um, but it is a barrier for a lot of people. Mm. And so it came out of Australia in the 1970s. Huh. And there were these two gentlemen that we give credit to for having come up with the whole concept of permaculture, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren. And what they intended by the name was that it was permanent agriculture. Mm. And initially they were looking for ways that humans could live closer to their um, their natural environment, to be part of their ecosystem, um, live in a way that didn't take away from other species, that didn't degrade natural systems, um, but would also provide their shelter, their food, their clean water. And so there was a heavy emphasis on food production yeah. and kind of homesteading initially. Um, in the 1980s, it got reinterpreted as permanent culture and to try to broaden it beyond agriculture to think about all other aspects of the human experience that could be mm. incorporated. Which make, which is a really natural transition to me. I think so. But the name is still weird. Permanent it, culture. Yeah, nothing's is, permanent. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ironically. <laughs> That's a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it has, as much as I would agree with you, that I run into people all the time that still don't know what it is, or they've heard of it, and they have a misconception of what it is. Um, it's incredible the amount of traction it's picked up over you know 30 40 years um and yet it's amazing it hasn't gone more mainstream mm. hasn't gone wider spread and i think there are a number of reasons why that's happened for one it's kind of the way that the knowledge gets passed down um people often will take a permaculture course and that's 70 to 100 hours um and that doesn't work for everybody um, the time doesn't work for everybody. The expense doesn't work for everybody. Mm. So now there have been more and more models for how that information can get transferred. There are free online courses. Um, we work with an organization that's based in Haiti, and they do a free permaculture course that's a three-month course. Um, and you do hands-on, and you do the course curriculum. In Haiti. In Haiti, yeah. but you're working at this reforestation site the whole time. Um, and so different ways of getting the information out. Technology obviously helps with that. Um, so that's helped, but also the early creators of the concept of permaculture is like this design system 
really disliked higher education. And so they really kind of told people you should stay away from colleges and universities that they, and they pointed out some really good critiques of higher ed that people tend to be located in silos. You know, if you're in the art program or the architecture mm. program, you should stay where you are. And if I'm in cell science or wildlife biology, I should stay where I am. This is not this yeah. crossing. Well, that doesn't, that's changing. That doesn't necessarily exist as much anymore. Colleges and universities are really trying to take a more systems approach. Um, and that's ideal for permaculture. And actually quite a few of us had, have started teaching, have been teaching um, permaculture courses in higher ed for six years at a number of different schools. And there are a bunch of other people doing the same. So now people are getting ready to go into a variety of careers and live their lives just you know, as homeowners or renters or, or whatever are getting exposed to this. So I think you're going to see the awareness of it really pick up. And I think we're stuck with the name. <laughs> so I just I don't yeah. put a lot of energy into trying to rename it. Yeah, but no, you also no, no. can, you don't have to call it permaculture. And yeah. there are a lot of people doing cool stuff. There are a few books I have here that never say permaculture, um, but they're critical textbooks yeah. for permaculture. Is it is a goal of permaculture to um, be a uh, entire community? I guess so. Yeah, like like um, in that what you're describing with the school, where everyone kind of there, there's a reason, there's a there's a a greater good reason if the architecture department interacts with the art department yeah. and interacts with the sports department, and so is there a greater good goal for? spreading the knowledge of permaculture to uh for the greater good of like an entire community and and keep connecting keep grabbing you know another one another one another you know another community into the bigger community is that i would say yes i think you're initially i wasn't sure but i think you're right and it's not like it's this you know inherent goal or any kind right. of oath that we've all signed on to but i think it's um implied yeah. And I think by through a lot of our individual actions, that naturally happens. Like for, through our own actions on our site, a lot of it's been self-serving. Like we've wanted to feel good about the way we're living here on the planet. We've wanted to challenge ourselves and learn, but other people can't help but drive by and notice. And so then right. you have all these great conversations and now you see other people's manifestations of their own desire to do the same mm. on their own property. Mm -hmm. So like on this prop, on this road alone, there are a couple other projects um, elsewhere in town, there are projects. When we did the skate park in town, we started planting um, perennial fruit trees. Mm. So there are Asian pears at our skate park. Oh, nice. I mean, and that was an intention to start to bring this kind of an awareness to other places and get other people excited. And then hopefully they would contribute because uh, I can't go around Asian pears everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's so funny. That's like a healthy snack for the kids while they skate. Absolutely. That's just self-providing. Right. That's permaculture. But it took a little while to get them to trust it was okay. Like I had to put pictures of the actual pears on Instagram and like tag the skate park and let them know like you can eat these. Right. And I had to like stop down there when I'd be finishing a run and like pick a couple pears and talk to people that were skating or biking down there. Oh, like, that's so funny. Hey guys, it's like free food right here. Yeah. Hungry? Right. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause I, I mean, it makes, uh, it just makes perfect sense. That must be a, that must be kind of a, uh, a, fr a frustrating element to it, uh, to kind of trying to spread the word and teaching It's like, Oh my God, this makes perfect sense. Like, but it is a lot of work. Yes and no. I guess, what are you thinking when you say it's a lot of work? Well, I'll, I'll give you an exact yeah. example <laughs> okay. actually is, is, um, I, as you know, I'm a hundred percent plant-based in my diet and I eat a lot of plants and yep. I love 
plants and I love trying new foods and, you know, varieties and everything. And I discovered this summer, I hate farming. Right. I got involved in like a, um, uh, I I sort of shared a plot with a woman who was kind enough who now regrets (laughs) getting me in because I was just like, oh, this is like, I just don't like it. It, and it wasn't even a lot of work. It just had no draw for me, which I feel is like sad. I'm saying this and it's like sad to me. Right. It's like, oh, that's a weird and a bummer because I work hard. You know what I mean? I work hard. I'm not afraid to like dig yeah, but holes. it doesn't resonate with you. It just does not at all. I have no, it's like, yeah, there they are. I can't wait till I can eat them. Right. Period. I think that's common though. Yeah. Like, and it's not, it's definitely not something to beat yourself up over. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think that... <clears throat> To some degree, I really like growing annuals, growing vegetables. Um, I don't like it enough to turn my whole property into an annual production. And I don't think that that meets, if I were to do that, I don't think that meets um, what this land can tolerate, what our particular Mm. piece of land can tolerate and the potential it has. And it definitely doesn't work with my lifestyle. I'm definitely working too much (laughs) to actually put that time in to do it well. Um, But I like to grow some of our annuals. And you you also become way more aware of how hard it is to farm and how important agriculture is and that, you know, maybe some of these large industrial operations are not the way to go. And there Mm. are, there are people that would like to farm that do enjoy the whole experience, but don't have access to land or the capital to get started. So like we can have conversations and get people excited about creating the opportunities for those that do. Um, But a lot of, I mean, the annual stuff is a fair amount of work. Um, a lot of the perennial systems, which we have more of here, are not. Yeah. Um, you know, it's a one-time investment of prepping the property, putting the plants in, you know, some pruning. Um, but typically what we're doing is we're planting a whole series of plants together that meet each other's needs. So when we walk around, I'll show you, like, by every fruit tree, there's a plant that is fertilizing that fruit tree. Mm. There's a plant that's distracting, distracting pests away from the fruit of the fruit tree. Um, and so th- these are all different niches that are being filled by plants and, you know, one plant is shading the other plant that needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, they, you're building relationships between the individual systems so that I don't have to do much. I mean, yeah. there are parts of the yard that aside from harvesting things, I might walk around for an hour a year right. with a beer and <laughs> something I can cut the plants with and just kind of cut and spread out some of these really soil building dynamic plants so they can go through a whole other growth period in that growing season. Yeah. But it's mostly just pleasurable. Yeah. And I think it's fascinating. I really do. I genuinely think it's all fascinating. I I, I love it. But it is like I just I'm not drawn to it at right. all. Uh, right. you know, I'm drawn a little more to um other other aspects of it. You know, I'm drawn more to like a uh, community aspect of it and um of permaculture, not like the farming stuff, but sure. um and uh you know um Oh, some of the stuff I saw in your house, like the, uh, I think those are um, water tubes up on your ceiling. Is that from? On the front of the house? Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's, solar hot water collector. Yeah. yeah. So some of the technology, the, we call it appropriate yeah. technology, things that can meet your needs and reduce impact on the environment. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that stuff that intrigues me. Yeah, that gets me. It's not even the water. It's, it's not even the act of like putting it up and gathering and all that. It's like, it's just reducing the impact is a thing for me. And, and right. a big thing for me lately has been, um, which is in the permaculture culture is, um, more minimalist lifestyle, 
minimalism. Like I'm really trying to back Bear off. Down. Yeah. On a lot of, and I, I mean, God, I have been for like years. I'm just not a consumer. I try right. not to be a consumer. Uh, well, a couple of the things that you just said though, I just wanted to comment on, because when you talked about your personal action to be on a plant-based diet, cause I too am on a plant-based mm-hmm. diet. And I think that processing that information, making a decision that's good for you from a, from a health perspective that you're excited about because food is a personal journey. Mm. And I think only we can decide what we're going to eat. Right. Um, so we just have both have happened to come to the same conclusion. And so if the plant-based diet for us is about the personal journey and our own health, um, we can also recognize there are tremendous environmental benefits that can, that have been documented for making that choice. Um, so you're already reducing, you know, the consuming of resources and lots of other, uh, things that happen when permaculture was first being spread the first couple of decades i mean vegetarianism even wasn't really talked about mm. in the literature there was a heavy mm. emphasis on creating these systems which had farm animals and food production and human shelters like all interwoven and some pretty beautiful imagery of like how you could live wherever you are animals were always kind of seen as being in service to right, humans tools yeah. and it's only been probably in the last five or so years that I have been very comfortable um, having conversations about um, plant-based systems for permaculture. And part of that's because there have been some great leaders that have stepped forward to say that that's their interpretation of permaculture. And that's just the way they're going to work on their individual projects. Mm. And there's been more openness to say, well, you know, diet is part of this and there are lots of different ways to do things. Um, So it's an exciting time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I was going to ask you about your vegan plant-based journey. Do you do you tend to say vegan or do you tend to say plant-based? You know, I tend to say I try to stay away from vegan, but I tend to use it more than I ever thought I would just yeah. because people understand it and I I think it's actually gotten a lot more um coverage. Uh but plant-based is really the most accurate yeah. for me. Yeah, yeah. Um I do try to make sure that in anything else that I'm kind of following the principles of veganism like in the mm. purchasing of clothing and every right. other aspect so it's yeah. not just about diet um but now i'm forgetting part of what your question was um i was just curious about what led you to it oh yeah and um yeah so one of the places that i've been fortunate to teach is a place called sadna forest and it's this reforestation site that started in haiti i mean started in india south in southern, southern india then we started a project in haiti um, and now there's a project also in Kenya. Mm-hmm. And so the project is focused on really degraded lands, lands that have been overgrazed and are just destroyed. The topsoil is washed off. There are all kinds of problems. Um, so they move into these locations and start a project. It's all volunteer run. Um, they believe in the gift economy, so they don't charge for services. They don't you know, pay people to come and do the work. Volunteers come, there's an exchange of knowledge and housing and food for, for the work. Um, and it's based on a vegan diet and a, mm. a plant-based understanding. And so when I would go there with students, I would have, you know, three weeks, let's say, where I would be on site eating a vegan diet and I felt different. Mm. And so after the first three week experience, which is, I mean, that's a pretty nice experience. Not a lot of people can take like three weeks out of their lives and just yeah. totally change their behaviors. Yeah. yeah. And so I realized that a lot of my diet was the ritual of, you know, what I buy every week what I eat every day, right? Yeah. It was just like habit. Yeah. And so when I 
broke that habit and started to re-examine it and have really good conversations with people who were willing to answer my questions, but were not, you know, standing on a soapbox and telling me what to do. Um, I decided that I could change my relationship with food. So I moved to a vegetarian diet initially. I'm sorry. When was this? So this is, no, this is, that's a good question. Probably 12 years ago. Oh, good. Um, and our oldest son moved to a vegetarian diet at the same time. And he was about four years old. Mm. Um, and he still is. Um, and so I moved to a vegetarian diet, did that for a couple of years and continued to go back to this site and then help start the site in Haiti. And then at one point said like, what am I doing? Like there are a few things that I'm eating that I don't need to eat. Um, I, I think my willpower is stronger than the power of cheese. Um, you know, but it was pretty strong, I guess. I mean, it held me up for a while, but I was like, you know what? I think that the health benefit and I think that the, the impact on animals for me matters. And so for me, um, I'm going to abandon this and I'm going to go to a full plant-based diet and I haven't looked back. Mm. Um, not only that, I mean, basically our house is a plant-based, um, homestead. I mean, we're, so we used to raise animals. We used to raise chickens. Um, we stopped doing that. Uh, we don't cook meat at the house. Um, we all eat plant-based diet, but when we're out, everybody makes their own decisions. So I have my youngest son, um, Mm. is a carnivore, but he identifies as a carnivore and Mm. he will often eat meat when he's out, but not all the time. Mm. Um, and he's only 13 years old and he knows more about food choice and the impact of diet on the planet than I think I did at 30 years old. Right. So I'm totally happy for him to choose his own direction and I would not want to push this yeah. on him. I don't think that would be beneficial yeah. to anybody. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's been it's been really good. Yeah, it's been a really good experience overall. And my mother and my stepfather went vegan oh about it's probably been five years or so. You said mother and stepfather. Yeah, yeah. but both um, for health reasons in their sixties. Um, my mother, you know, more thinking about like bone density, and that's like a a chronic problem here, mm-hmm. especially for women in the U S um, you know, and cholesterol related issues. Yeah. And like, do you medicate or do you try to be more active and change your diet? Yeah. Um, and they've had good success. So, and not because I, I asked them mom. to yeah. <laughs> I'll have to send her the link to the podcast. Oh no, my mom. Oh, your mom, <laughs> <laughs> your mom will listen and she'll be like, yep. My mom's like fighting it. Okay. Yeah. Fighting it. Yeah. I mean, you have, People have to decide for themselves yeah, what works. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's like we could go down this rabbit hole. Oh yeah, deep and could far. Spend days. It's, yeah, it's really. <laughs> but it's. I like the. Um, I like your comment about um, the fact that you felt it. Yeah. The fact that you know that like that was. It sounded sounds to me like you said that was the first thing that that drew you was you were doing this and you felt it, and uh, and that's one of the things I've tried to. Um, uh, say in when anyone does want to talk about it is is just give it some time like give it give it 30 days right and i guarantee you in 30 days you'll feel a difference and uh, i think that's significant because um philosophically i understood why it may be a good option mm-hmm. um like i knew the data i knew how my environmental footprint my my personal footprint would shrink considerably if I made that dietary choice, but that wasn't enough to get me to act. Yeah, um, It kind of was gnawing at the back of my mind, I think. Yeah. But it was when I had that firsthand experience and the positive feedback of feeling different. Like I felt like my body actually worked, you know, as a cohesive unit. It wasn't like my digestive system was, you know, fighting back yeah. from something I just yeah, yeah, yeah. stuffed into it. Yeah, um, being taxed. 
Being so the tagged, whole time you're trying to, to the yeah. whole time you're trying to kind of like focus and concentrate on something else, your digestive system is just like working, working hard. yeah, working overdrive to to just like manage yeah. what you put in it. So I think that personal experience is powerful, at least to keep you committed to it. If it's something that yeah, well, it's do. the aha moment. Right. That's this. That's, that's true. That's the stuff you can't teach in any kind of realm. You know, you can't teach the aha moment. Someone has to like have it and feel it. And I, I try to say like, I'm telling you, you will feel it. Like you'll feel it. Like I think even with Chris, yeah. you know, he's, he dabbles and he, he eats, you know, he eats both the worst I've ever seen. And he knows what good healthy food is and he knows what it tastes like and he knows it's good. Right. Um, but he hasn't, he hasn't fully committed and dove and dove in. So he hasn't, he just hasn't felt it. Right. It does take time. I think like you said. Yeah. 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 Like, like 30 days you'll feel it. And I think one of the most alarming things that I recognized, uh, after, cause I stopped in one day, I, I went from eating hamburgers and everything. And literally one day I said, I'm never eating animal again. And That's I just intense. stopped and never went back. And, uh, so for me, the, the opportunity to feel it was pretty significant. Right. You know, like that's right. a pretty big change and it's just from now go. This, there was no kind of like dabbling and like dropping little, you know, uh, backwards moments yeah. back in, right? And uh, But one of the things I really noticed is um, was mental clarity. Absolutely. It was really wild. It was such a real thing that, you know, is, is people are definitely not going to kind of like buy into and, and like believe is a strong word, but, you know, it's, it's, it's almost hard to fathom like what that would feel like mm -hmm. from your diet, but it was really real, you know? And I, and I think that's, um, kind of like your digestive system being taxed. Um, I just think there's, there's a lot of toxins in that food that's, um, that's clouding your brain up yeah. and you're really giving your brain an opportunity to kind of like literally flush. Right you know, and, and free up some space. And that's this, what it felt like to me. The same's true of, you know, really processed food and the food that you might be growing on your community garden plot or mm. in your yard. Um, you feel different. Absolutely. You know, the nutrient yeah. level is higher. It can, yeah. And it, even here, like there are some things I think we could do better to get to even more maximize the value of our food. But, um, I know that it's better than the processed stuff oh, yeah. and, you know, the stuff that's coming, it's been picked way too early, coming from way too far away right. and having all these other impacts. Yeah. Like stressed out. The yeah. food is like stressed out. Right. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. But then that, that also speaks to, uh, uh, how much it actually speaks to how much, how many nutrients are in the food. You know, when you're getting a, you know, a cantaloupe from, where, where are we getting Guatemala? Right. Right. You know, right. and it's been on a plane or a boat or, you know, and picked so long ago and sitting in a grocery store and then sitting in your like counter by the time you eat it, it's exhausted. Yeah. You it's know? hardly a cantaloupe. It's not yeah. going to be a flavor explosion. When yeah. You eat it. Yeah. But then it's, but then it is, it actually like, you know, can taste good <clears throat> and you actually, you know, your body's using it. Right. You know, so imagine if that's an interesting thing to, to get across too is, you know, is, um, it, you, we're organic beings and we need, and I don't mean organic in the sense of like what's stamped on my bag. It says no. organic. I mean food. Right. You know, so we're, we're organic matter. We're biology. Yeah. Absolutely. And what, what, what makes someone think that, that that's not our fuel and right. the cleaner and stronger and, you know, and, and fresh and, you know, pure it is the better. And, you know, Period. this, this relates back 
um, to what we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast. I watched the Leonardo DiCaprio movie last night um, before oh, the flood. Yeah. We showed it on it. campus. It was I thought it was excellent. I, mean, I was a little bit worried about you know being part of showing another environmental documentary that just continued to show how bad things are getting globally. Mm-hmm. But one at, it was really well done. And one of the aspects of the movie focused on diet, focused on in the U.S. on the agricultural sector, um, and it showed the amount of acreage being used in the U.S. for agriculture, and that seventy percent of that is just to grow food to feed to yeah. beef cattle. Yeah. Um, you know, it's water that's taken from us. Tremendous amount of water. <laughs> you might, the methane, the water, like all they went through all the impacts, mm. and they and they didn't try to be too preachy, but they just said like, this is the data. Yeah. If you are going to be eating meat, cut back on it or consider eliminating that type of meat or consider eliminating meat altogether. And like you decide how big your footprint is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's staggering. Oh, it's mind boggling. Right. It really is. Right. Yeah. Um, so, um, I wanted to learn a little more about you. Yeah. Um, you are avid runner. Yes. I like that. Yeah, late yeah, late too. in life runner. I didn't start until so, I was in my twenties. Yeah. yeah. Oh, geez, I started way later. Okay. I was going to say me too, but you were you were a kid <laughs> when you were running. I guess I was. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. So, um, you, you did you you recently did your first marathon? No, I did a marathon with my oldest son. Yeah. It was his first marathon. Oh, right on. Um, I started running probably when I was twenty seven or so. Yeah, I was about twenty seven. Um, and it was one of those things where I had never been able to commit to running prior yeah. to that. Like I just never, I run for a couple of days and then flake out or whatever. And I could see even in my twenties that I was getting a certain level of inactivity with an office job where I was working mm. for the state of New Hampshire at the time. And I just felt like I wasn't getting active. My body was changing in ways that I was not excited about. Um, and so I started to run and I knew that I needed a goal to stay honest with it. And so in a totally ridiculous, probably mm-hmm. naive uh, move, I signed up to run a 24-hour race, trail oh. race. By yourself or part of a team? Um, par- part of it, it was an initiative um, where I committed to run by myself for 24 hours to raise money for the American Diabetes Association. Yeah, I'd say that was silly. <laughs> well, there were a couple of reasons. One was I was you know, totally cash poor and wanted to go on a trip somewhere and do something, have yeah. a destination, have an adventure. Um, so I picked this 24 hour race in Alaska. Um, and my wife and I actually went, this is before we had kids. We went and spent two weeks in Alaska awesome. and did the race in the middle. Um, so you're adventurous. You yeah. That adventurous yeah. spirit. You're out there. Oh, it's definitely there, yeah, yeah. but it was more later in life. Yeah. Um, so in leading up to that, I did my first ever 5k and then I did a six hour race and then I went and did this 24 hour race. Wow. And I just really enjoy, I enjoy being out in the woods. I enjoy trail running more than anything. Mm. Um, and so I really liked this idea of long races, races that would take many, many hours. And so I, then I did a bunch of 50 mile races and 50 nice. Ks. And then as the kids were growing up, I kind of got away from it a little bit until they were old enough to start doing five Ks and trail runs. Um, so I've come and gone from it, but I run pretty consistently. Um, I'm fortunate that most of the time I'm working right here from yeah. the property or right over from the university. And so, so I can head right out to the trails. Right there. Literally yeah. not even getting in your car. You just no, run right into the road. Or I'll just do a quick road run around town. <clears throat> um, but so many beautiful places to run. And so the race that we just did was the, uh, it was Burke Mountain. It's the Circum Burke. Uh, it was a trail, run. right? Yeah, yeah. 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 It was good. I'm 100% trail. And I, I can't run on the road. It's so much easier yeah. on your body. Oh and you gosh. have to be so Night much more dead. mindful. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. It's a, it's a completely different workout. 
A. You got to pay attention. Every single, literally every step. <laughs> or you go down. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. And uh, so I love that about it. Yeah. I love the fact that every step is different. Right. You know, like you're just on your body. And uh, and it is night and day for me. If yes. I run one mile on the road, my knees hurt, my hips hurt, my back hurts. Really? And I'll run for hours in the woods and feel great. Yeah. Like my sneakers are getting a little tired right now. Like my heel was bothering me the other day, but... Um, but I feel like none of that is there. So I just, so I just, I don't even do it. I just stick to the trails. Good I love, you. love the trail running. I do too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I run in the same woods all the time and I never get sick of it. It's like a meditation though. Yeah, I, I mean, it's so that's what it is practice. for you, right? Very much so. Yeah. yeah. I actually, um, you know, meditated on and off since college, like try it periodically do a meditation. I'll still do like short breathing exercises and things, um, during the workday just to like take a moment and kind of regain some presence and clarity and not just get hyped up by doing things. Yeah. Um, and so I came back from one of my trips abroad and went to a local meditation teacher. Cause I felt like when I was meditating um, with friends in India, I was having these really amazing experiences, but I wasn't sure if I was doing it right or what type mm. of meditation was the right one for me. Um, and so I went and met with this person and we spent time and had tea together and talked and did you learn that there is no right that's what I learned, man. <laughs> um, and he was really kind. And he, mm. he talked, he had me talk about the things that I do that I enjoy that work for me. And I kept talking about running. And he said, you know, that's your meditation. Yeah. Like, don't fight it. You don't have to do what I do. You don't have to do what anyone else does. And at that point, I really started to see that. And I prefer to run alone for that reason. I mm. mean, running with my son or running with a friend yeah. is a great opportunity to really be bonded. Yeah. Um, but those times going out for 45 minutes or an hour by yourself, I come back, I'm um, reinvigorated, mm -hmm. my, mentally much more clear. But often some of my best ideas or inspirations oh. come during that time. Oh, my God. Right? I like, I mean, and, and I'm so um, not attached to like my, my performance of my running right. that I like, and this, you know, goes against a lot of the chatter that I've been chatting lately, but I'll bring my phone with me because okay. I can write notes. And so I'll be in the middle of a run and I'm just thinking and thinking and thinking. I have a great idea and I'll stop and I'll open my phone and I'll get out notes and I'll write down my note and then I just put it back and I keep on running. I right. get like some of my best ideas and just like creative thinking out there running. That's awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And it That's is. Awesome. It's so energizing. It builds, um, yeah, it builds all the energy for everything else. So as much as I love running, um, this year we, my, my son got me to go and, Try paragliding. paragliding. So paragliding is similar to hand gliding. Um, it's un, unpowered flight, mm -hmm. um, but the wing is up above, you, above your head, similar to a parachute. Mm -hmm. So it's a soft, inflatable wing. And we went and tried it in June um, for his birthday. Wow. And it was just a fun experience, you know, dad and son thing. And yeah. Can I kind of do this and check it off, having tried paragliding? Right. Um, and we actually get off the ground, like a couple feet off the ground. Um, is it, how do you, can, how do you do it? Is you, it a run and get going? Exactly. Oh, cool. So when you're initially learning, you're on a much flatter slope. You lay the paraglider out behind you. You have a harness mm -hmm. that you actually sit in once you're in flight. Oh, neat. Um, so you're so not in Superman. You're in a chair. You're in a chair. You're oh, upright. Yep. So you're actually standing. The glider's behind you. And then you start to walk forward and pull up on the lines. Catch and wind. the glider actually comes up and it starts to inflate because you're always launching into the wind. So it's starting to mm. inflate over your head you can actually start to run um, and pick up the speed necessary to get flight. Um, as you progress through the different levels of certification, you end up going to higher and higher elevations mm. or windier spots where 
you don't necessarily have to take any steps. You just kind of pull it oh, up weird. and you're off. Um, but there's a whole hike and fly practice around like packing up your paraglider and like hiking to the top of a mountain and then flying. Oh my God. That it's very similar in a lot of ways to what I love about trail running. You know, it's, it's quiet. It's maybe the calmest I've ever felt being in the glider flying. It's not nerve wracking. It's a low speed flight. Um, so it's typically you're flying in conditions that are less than like 12 miles an hour. Yeah. And it's just peaceful. Oh, wow. And yet it's exhilarating and yeah. How high are you ending up going at the, at the stage you're at now? Yeah. What's your, what's your uh, altitude? So we've only done, <laughs> we did our first cert. We completed our first certification this year. So we're both certified. And this is your son. Pilot, pilots, my son. Yeah. yeah. He completed his first certification for flying before he got his driver's license. <laughs> um, and so we've only flown, we've probably only been no more than like 75 or 80 feet oh, tops. Um, but then. 75 or 80 feet. Yeah. Of, of you know minute minute and a half flight down from the top of a hill to the bottom um you're really working on launching and landing and like all these mechanical mm -hmm. pieces next year we'll do our second um certification which is mountain certification and then you launch you actually do it over in west rutland but people fly off cannon mountain people fly off burke mountain mm -hmm. um there are all these um official locations for yeah, paragliding right, right. and hand gliding as well, well um so. sounds kind of cool did and, you did, um how is it a, uh, once you get up there and you're doing it, is there kind of a, uh, is there like a limited time per flight? Do you, are you eventually just kind of going down, 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 or could you circle back and kind of stay up there as long as you wanted? Yeah, there are a bunch of different styles of flying. Uh, okay. Um, you can continue to, you can grab thermals like a bird does. Yeah. So you can watch for thermals. They even sell little gadgets that will tell you when you're uh, in a yeah. thermal. Yeah. But you can climb, gain altitude. Um, and people do cross-country flights. Um, people will fly from one location to another, grabbing thermals, keeping mm -hmm. their, their altitude up. Um, and some people will do what they call sled runs, where you just start at the top of like Cannon Mountain. You launch, you kind of get out away from the mountain, and then you just gradually fly down and yeah. land in the parking lot. Right. Um, so there are lots of different styles and you're digging it. It's amazing. It's like, yeah, it's, it really has my, um, I don't know. It's got me really excited. I'm like curious about different experiences yeah. in the glider. I'm really curious about the practice of it. Um, cause it's definitely one of those things you get more proficient the more you do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, it's expensive. It. Um, the course was not expensive, but starting to buy gear, it's, mm. you know, it's comparable to buying a really nice mountain bike. Mm -hmm. Um, so initially kind of had sticker shock looking at used gear, but I'm like, you know, you can spend like, a couple like thousand anything. bucks on a bike yeah, um, yeah. easily. Um, so it's similar. Yeah. That. And so what do you, do you have your stuff now? Uh, no, you, you guys, pen, so you renting pending. every time. So when it's incorporated for the first lesson, series yeah. of lessons, we go to a place called Morningside yeah. over in Charlestown, New Hampshire. Yeah. Um, one of the top places in the country mm. for hand gliding and paragliding instruction. Um, but we're both looking at buying gear. So it'd be something to be looking at this winter. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's a, is a off season purchases be a little cheaper. Let's hope. Hopefully. <laughs> but you can actually fly in all seasons. Um, people do something called speed flying where they have a slightly smaller rig, slightly <clears throat> smaller wing and you wear skis and oh. you actually launch on skis and oh, touch man. down. And the more we learned about it, that's probably not, the type of paragliding I'm going to get into because yeah. you just constantly in close proximity to the earth, yeah. um, you know, and you're, you're traveling pretty fast. Yeah. So how often are you getting out in your mountain bike these days? Um, not as much. I will, I tend to run more. Yeah. Um, Same here. I 
my youngest son prefers mountain biking. And so I'll try to get out with him. We have great trails here and I've been over to Highland mountain bike park for the first time with him. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't ride as much. Yeah. It's shame, isn't it? It's fun, but it's definitely one of those things. The more you ride, the smoother you get, right? I mean, just, you get more nimble on the bike and I find I just need to ride a lot longer to get the same type of workout that I get. Yeah. That, that is a, it's a bang for the buck for, uh, for us adults. Yeah. Like we got a little window of an hour. Right. So by the time you pack your bike up, well, you, we you can just, ride yeah, right from you here. Right out here. I, mean, I guess I could too. I'm only a few miles away from the woods. So I could ride over there and ride in, but it is still longer to get right. that same, get that same thing. But I kind of miss it. I'm glad you brought this up though. Cause I think like thinking about these, the different ways we recreate, like that follows this theme. Like we're, I tend to want to do non-motorized things. Mm. I tend to want to be out within the natural environment that I'm also working hard to protect and be sensitive to. So like it keeps me connected with the type of work that I'm doing and like the, the focus on natural resource protection Mm. and kind of healing, um, the damage that's been done to some of the environments. Yeah. But it also is important to carve out that time for your own health and your own mental, um, state, um, and just to stay connected. Yeah. And what like, better way than running and biking and right, flying in the and, woods? Yeah. 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 Like this is what I do this for. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. It does make sense. It's pretty cool. Um, so maybe you can answer a question for me. I've always thought in, in trail protection thing, uh, yeah. issues, you know, so in these woods that I'm in a lot right now, they're talking about closing some trails and I can't tell, I'm, I'm not super privy to, to the, uh, to the reasons, but I've heard a, a couple of different one is the trails eroding. Right. And the other is just simply, it's kind of like been too close to someone's property and they, they don't like seeing the runners go by or whatever, which is kind of weird. Like yeah. all two a day. Impacting their privacy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, is the trail erosion thing, I guess if it's right next to water, that would make sense to me. Sure. Right? And depending on the volume of users. I mean, I could see there's there's the location of a trail. Not every piece of land can handle a trail the same. So there's the location of the trail. There's the manner in which the trail is constructed. We've had a lot of mountain bike trail construction mm-hmm. happening through um, the New England mountain bike folks here in town. Mm-hmm. And the quality of the trail construction is superior to just a lot of our local trails that were mm-hmm. created over time um, because they really think about drainage and they really mm-hmm. think about how the water is going to flow on the trail and where it's going to go to. And they mm-hmm. really try to avoid going through wetlands. And when they do have to cross wetland, they've built some pretty cool bridges, which make for fun running yeah. and riding as yeah. well. So I think the construction, the location, and then the management, you know, sometimes yeah. it's a user conflict thing or a proximity to a homeowner. Um, yeah. There are a lot of issues that go into yeah. trail maintenance and construction. So out there in the middle of like in where I am, I'm seeing, I'm seeing guys like, you know, raking. They're yeah. just like kind of raking leaves out of the way and kind of like almost creating a little path and they'll, they'll build up berms as they notice that it's start, starting to slide down the hill. Right. They'll build them back up. Um, they will, um, and then they just take fallen trees and they kind of like line them up and kind of steer you bars and or steer and you, you, you know, right. like the little directionals. And then it's just out in the middle of, you know, a hundred square miles of, of like wood. And I've always sort of wanted like, and, and in the permaculture culture, yeah, I, there, there's, there's things to consider, right? There's like, there is the direct impact on that direct square foot of land. 
Sure. And there's no denying that. Right. Like I am like you might kill that tree. Right. Right. Which is a legitimate, you know, so no, our goal is to not do these things. And then, and then you, but then you could also weigh, um, you know, what, and then, okay, so that tree might get it, like its roots might be coming exposed because I'm wearing out the trail near it, mm-hmm. right? I'm just digging dirt away so the roots are becoming exposed. Right. Right. But then one tree, and then there's all the sort of humans that are out there using it um, for um, like a whole life, a complete life. Yep. Is that making sense? Absolutely. Am I describing that right? So, so you know, you're out there communing with nature. And so for you... You're abusing the trail, right. running and walking on it, but you're making your mind right. And you're in turn turning around and, and doing much more good for the planet than the bad right. running. So when do you close the trails and when do you just say, eh, you know, we don't, we don't need to get that crazy about it? Yeah, that's a tough call because, I mean, I think it, it really depends and it's so site specific. I think there mm. are times where... Um, you know, you can reroute a trail and address the problem that's at hand. And I think anyone mm-hmm. that's managing a trail well, you know, will see that there are alternatives. And, you know, I think about a piece of land, whether it's 100 acres or 1,000 acres or 10 acres, mm-hmm. that has some trails on it that people walk or bike or however they spend their time. There is an impact, but the impact is less than if that land were to be converted to a strip mall mm, yeah, or yeah, yeah. a Housing sub- suburban subdivision, yeah, right? Yeah. And so I think if you're getting people to use the land and to care about it and to want to be good stewards of it. It may be through that recreation that you can get more conservation done. Um, There's a map actually behind you for a project we're working on in the Moose Mountains region of New Hampshire. So seven towns um, from like Wolfboro to the north, all the way down to the north end of the Rochester uh, town boundary. And so a seven town region Mm. where there's been some great conservation work done. There are tremendous natural resources that still could be conserved, um, things like drinking water, mountaintops, like lots of things. Um, and through this process, we're trying to get people to talk with us about how they live, work, and play in this region. So what areas are important for agriculture, if not now, in the future? Where do they go ride their horse? Where do they go hiking? Right. Um, because there are multiple reasons why people are passionate about a property. It's not all just because of an awareness of conservation. And so through connecting these properties for recreation, there may be more conservation value, more habitat protection than if we just approached it with one mindset. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's multifaceted. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I, and I did see some of that happening in these trails I'm talking about. Is that we were, I was talking to a group of guys in the parking lot and, you know, and they were saying, you know, I, that's what I tried to tell these landowners. Like, the, you know, they didn't like that they were building more trails. Right. And, and he said, he tried to point out, he's like, the reason they did it is because the other ones were getting eroded too close to the river's edge. And so they're rerouting people and creating another opportunity of, of you know, some land that's, um, you know, hasn't been sort of treaded on yet. That communication is critical. That understanding, yeah. you know, sometimes yeah. it's not apparent yeah. why. Yeah. yeah. But I think it, I, it, it sounded to me like someone had already dug their heels in that's too deep and it was just like la 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 i can't hear you right like, yeah that's unfortunate yeah it is um all right one more thing i had to uh uh a subject can can permaculture save detroit that's an interesting question why did you select detroit <laughs> i have a thought but why, I'm yeah curious. well because um because it's uh well 
because I, I was watching Parts Unknown, Anthony Bourdain, and he yeah. went to Detroit and he right. did a he did a really good job. I'm obsessed with Anthony Bourdain and his shows, and uh, and he did a really good job at painting this picture of Detroit as. Um, <clears throat> um, you know, destitute. Like it was, uh, I think he described it as po- post-apocalyptic. Yeah. You know, it's really um, down. And 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 so when I started learning about permaculture, you know, it, there was an element of it that what had was both very hopeful and hopeless. Sure. You know, and and hopeful were people still there, and there was something. You know, there was just this pocket of people that were still passionate about Detroit and still like willing to stick it out and, or even come back right? and, you know, try to do cool things and try to, you know, encourage um, everything from positive attitudes to uh, growth, you know? And then, um, and then other people just that really were there doing whatever they could because they ultimately didn't have any other option. You know, they didn't have the wherewithal to just pack up and move and like, go somewhere else and like make a go of it. And so, you know, you have these surroundings that are like, you know, crazy, like just houses abandoned, burning down, um, lots, but it was, some of the stuff was interesting in this, in this whole, the earth will come back stuff. It was just visually, it was pretty cool where, you know, what used to be a thriving factory is now just literally being, you know, grown through by, you know, plants and, sure. and stuff trying to, come back like oh okay you guys are done with it yeah exactly and they'll reclaim but to me that speaks to there's a lot of opportunity for a a permaculture situation if you have all that stuff if you have an environment which you would probably argue every environment has an opportunity right um but if they have that sitting there and then they have this core of people willing to you know the, the the attitude was like we're willing to do anything we love Detroit and we don't want to go. So, so I saw all that. So that's why to me, Detroit was a natural, a, a natural kind of uh, subject. Um, and also it's huge. It's huge. Absolutely. It's one of, you know, it's this amazing city. It's got this amazing history and, uh, and it would be catastrophic if nothing happens and it, and it kind of right. just goes away because it just, you know, no momentum ever, ever gathers. So when I heard about, when I started learning a little bit about permaculture, I thought, well, that's a natural someone Steve just has to go in there and save the day and be like, you know what? I have the answer everybody. And let's just do this. There are some pretty amazing permaculture folks located there. (laughs) Yeah. So I think permaculture is there. I think permaculture could be part of the solution. Um, unless it's really adopted as a comprehensive approach. Um, it can't be the only solution Mm. because, you know, Detroit exists within the country and the overriding culture, which is still yeah. very capitalist right. focused has, has its yeah. own challenges, fossil yeah. fuel driven. Um, Particularly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think you're right in sensing that there are opportunities there that permaculture could be part of that kind of recreating of that ecosystem and the, um, um, into a more sustainable city, a different Detroit. Yeah. Um, but uh, there have been a lot of folks that have returned there for the purpose of urban agriculture um, there are other examples from other cities where that's worked really well. Philadelphia has a tremendous permaculture-inspired um, city orcharding program and a lot of organic agriculture happening on city-owned land. Mm. Um, a lot of w- the blocks where buildings have been burned down um, or uh, eliminated, demolished for other reasons, um, the parcels have been turned back to the neighborhoods to really create these park and food-producing locations. And there are 
example after example after example around the country and around the world of where this has come together. Just it takes leadership and it takes people who are from Detroit and understand the culture of the city um, just chipping in and doing their piece, I think, and kind of setting it. I think there I've seen, you know, little case study examples of stuff going on in Detroit that does provide hope. But I think the scale of it, it's going to take time. Yeah. And crazy daunting can be really daunting. And if it's in the face of city policies that are still kind of the old paradigm, um, it's going to slow it down. Whereas if if it were more comprehensive, if if you did really take a new approach and say, okay, we're not going to be, you know, the type of city we were in the past, we're going to be something different and kind of paint a vision and corresponding policies. I think it could move it faster. Um, We're seeing that here in Franklin, New Hampshire with the permaculture. There's a citywide permaculture initiative. Um, there's a nonprofit that gets started to help orchestrate it and work with city officials and businesses. They're doing a $12 million mill renovation inspired by permaculture. Mm. Um, here in New Hampshire in a really small, um, challenged city. And it's inspiring. Like the buildings that are being fixed up, the businesses that are moving in, um, the nature that's being returned to the city. Um, are all the businesses kind of a like-minded and all the, the renovations that are happening? Is this all with a like-minded approach? The work that's happening is, yes. I yeah. would say not all the businesses are necessarily on board. Right. Uh, maybe they never all will be, like in any city. Mm-hmm. Not everybody buys into the, whatever initiative is there. Um, but the folks that have gotten excited about the permaculture vision, about the ecological um, restoration of the city, the revitalization of the city. Um, those folks are doing some awesome work. And now it's starting to be visible when you drive through. There's a coffee shop that people from Franklin started. It's volunteer run huh. because they wanted to create a place, a space that was uh, safe and kind of built social capital where people could come together and just talk. And yeah. they didn't see how the economy could support it yet. So they created it and they staff it as volunteers and it just expanded so now it's two storefronts. Wow. Um, so there are a lot of dynamic things happening. And I think people are, you know, maybe similar to what will happen or is happening in Detroit. People are realizing they don't have to use the same tools from the past. They can create new things. Yeah. The sharing economy can have a bigger role. Um, you know, we can create new models. Yeah. We can have experiments and not all of them are going to work out. And like we can, it can be safe to fail too. Yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. different, yeah. different mentality. Yeah. So and I think part of the mentality that, uh, that, has to shift for it to either work and or not fail is the mentality of everything has to be about um, capital and success. And and I have to make a certain amount of money. And I think, you know, everyone kind of has that. And then we'll make a lot of money or then I'll be really successful as opposed to just like always just stopping short of that. And it's like, no, it's okay just to sustain. Right. And not be negative impact. That would be sort of the ultimate goal, you know, um, that, and that, that would be a great, you, you, in the show, um, in Detroit, you saw like little kind of examples of that where these people were just doing, you know, he just pulled up and it's a woman on the side of the road was just selling her food. That's cool. You know what I mean? She was just like, it's how she eats and it's how neighborhood people eat and they just drive by and, but intuitively I think. You know, I want if if it ever. I'd like to think that that's good for her. You know, right. that's good. This is good. I'm happy. You know, but would it be? And then when the city comes back, then I can finally open my store, and then I can finally. You know, yeah, who knows, right? Yeah. All interesting. 
Yeah, I think, I mean, as as much as there are challenges out there in places like Detroit, uh, are really stark, you know, thinking about the challenges we face. <clears throat> um, you know, permaculture is one tool that's just really focused on turning problems into solutions. It's really solution um, based. It's exciting. Mm. And it's, so it's a nice... It's a nice lens to use in looking at any of these problems that we face on our own properties and our own communities, because it's um, you're inspired to dream a little bit. You're inspired to collaborate, to give things time, to craft new solutions. Um, but it's it tends to come from a place of abundance it's, as opposed to a place of scarcity. And so mm -hmm. much of the common culture, the overriding culture is about scarcity and fear. And from a permaculture perspective, it's about, wow, there's enough for everybody. And we can all yeah, do things that yeah. meet our needs, but actually have all these additional beneficial yields. That that's what I want to be part of. Like yeah. that's the kind of movement I want to, you know, put a lot of extra time into. Yeah. As opposed to just locking down and being, you know, fearful. Yeah. Right on, man. Yeah. I dig it. Uh, anything else the world needs to know about Steve? Probably not. We should spare them. <laughs> But this was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It's cool. Definitely learned a lot. Excellent. Yeah, it's cool. Excellent. Well, all right. Let's end it there. That was a good thought. And um, thanks, brother. Thank you. All right. All right. Let's go walk keep, around. Keep doing your good stuff. That sounds good. All right, brother. Peace. All right.